1: Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month as a New Year's resolution? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally.
2: Totally Football Show FA Cup Joy for United fans As narrow victory Over Liverpool Means they are now Officially as good As Burnley We round up All the fourth round news From Old Trafford To New Den And ask Swansea Worst thing for Forest Since Agent Orange And Chelsea Werner can't score goals Kepa can't stop them What if they swap positions All of that Plus When keepers score And a special On this day In this Totally Football Show In association with Paddy Powell. All right, listener, thank you for joining us. Monday, 25th of January, kicking off a brand new week with Team Totally. Sweeping changes to the lineup for this FA Cup weekend. We've got Matt Davis Adams joining us. Hey, Matt. Hello, James. Lovely to see you. Daniel Story also on the line. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. And whoop, whoop, that's the sound of the priest, David Priest.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me back on. It, it has been um, titled The Return of David Yeah. which is like a rubbish Mark Morrison. But I'm quite happy with it.
2: That's quite a thought. But uh, Monday Night Football's David Priest now, eh, David?
3: Well, I'm happy to say that I've made my debut, you know. One way or another, I was it's been an ambition of mine. So, yeah, it's nice to get on somehow.
2: Right. Uh, they picked up on, on one of your tweets in which, um, well, talk us through it. You were praising Jamie Carragher's analysis of Carl Darlow and then touching on Allison's positioning, etc.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was it, basically that Jamie had been doing a little bit of analysis of goalkeepers of Carl Darlow, in particular of the, the goal he conceded and, yeah, quite rightly give him a bit of praise. I, I hand out a lot of criticism to, to pundits on TV for for their sort of cack-handed way of, uh, of handling goalkeepers. But um, Alisson's just, he's the consummate uh, in, in position when it comes to goalkeeping. So it's it was good to hear somebody giving a bit of positive uh, praise and appraisal, and appraisal that was right. So, yeah, uh, credit where it's due, eh?
2: Alisson, who received a certain amount of criticism for being beaten by Bruno Fernandez's game-winning free-kick This Sunday afternoon in in the FA Cup.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are right what they say. You know, there's questions asked when the ball hits the goalkeeper's side. And as a goalkeeper, you're always thinking about what's going over the wall. You know, you're always edging towards that side because there's a lot of space to make up, especially when the free kicks are centrally or just off centre for Fernandes today and when you've got someone like him you're always aware of that you're always thinking about that he's got the quality to get it up and over the, over the wall and you want to try and cover everything of course it's it's not always possible and, and it just shows you the, the fine margins uh, and details in, of goalkeeping because he didn't even actually take Alisson didn't actually take a step to his right it was almost just he crouched down low into a, a position where it was going to be harder to move from and he just put all his body weight onto his right hand side and that was enough for Fernandes to take advantage of that. And from that position where he was, with a weight being his right, he just couldn't get a full spring to his left-hand side, which normally, if you just hold his position, uh, he'd probably get a hand to it. But it's, it's like a game of chicken, you know, trying to hold your nerve as long as possible to give yourself the best chance of saving it.
2: Mm. Jermaine Genus knew what was coming but Alisson didn't can't wait to get your analysis on Kepper's afternoon for Chelsea against Luton but uh, that's to come when we do a round-up of some of the other news but we definitely should start off with the standout game of the fourth round which, what were the odds turned out to be Man united Liverpool at Old Trafford You're listening to The Totally Football Show sponsored by Paddy Power
1: and part of the Athletic Podcast Network
0: Almost undoubtedly going to be Bruno Fernandes! Woo! It is quite magnificent. That is
4: pinpoint perfect from Bruno Fernandes and Manchester United lead again.
2: 3-2 to Man United. Fascinating game. Teams trading shots, trading goals. Momentum swinging one way than the other. Daniel and Matt, what did you make of it?
5: Yeah I mean it was exactly that. Um, football is is brilliant to watch when it, it's kind of engaging when it matters a huge amount but quite often the best games you get are when it matters but doesn't matter too much and I think we, we talked about last week about maybe the big six fixtures this season it's going to be so close that teams are quite happy with a point and, and knockout football is the antidote to that and also that there are players in the team who are desperate to try and you know, make themselves first-teamers. And it was, yeah, it was tremendous fun. It really was. Um, I thought United were, were pretty good value for it. I think they after half-time they played the better football. Um, but I also think that Klopp will be pretty encouraged firstly to see his team start scoring again. Uh, and scoring against a defence has been pretty good. But, yeah, also I think, I think this game kind of showed for the first time that maybe... Fabinho as a centre-back is, is not necessarily a long-term option. He's been excellent now. He's stepped in so well that we've kind of not really noticed um, him. But you did notice him here, I think, a couple of times. And the lack, his, you know, his lack of protection in midfield is exactly the same.
6: Yeah, I felt like nearly everybody came out of this game as a, as a winner, and and to a certain extent, even Jurgen Klopp. You know, he's out of a competition that it, he clearly doesn't hold in that in that high regard. But he's seen some shoots of recovery from his players, and what Daniel's saying about Fabinho kind of underscores his case to to go to Fenway and say, hey, maybe we should sign some defenders in the next couple of weeks because we really don't have any left. But you know, from United's point of view, felt like a big deal for Mason Greenwood to get a goal. Uh, He'd been a while without. Uh, Cavani looks really good for them at the moment. And, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, this is from TalkSport, over the last year he's beaten Klopp, Bielsa, Ancelotti, Nagelsmann, Guardiola and Mourinho. Um, That's pretty impressive. So he was a winner too. And I've got to say, I've not been fussed about the FA Cup this season. It's felt frivolous to me and I generally struggle to get that hyped about matches involving teams I don't support in stadiums without any supporters in them. But this was fantastic. And you even had, you know, the sheer joy of seeing Andy Robertson just screaming at Mason Greenwood <laughs> rather than trying to tackle him uh, in a bid to stop him from from scoring, which was easily the highlight of the weekend for me.
2: Well, the Chemical Brothers called it the best game since lockdown started. I was Ed Simon uh, tweeting that. Uh, good to know. You say everyone comes out there's a winner with the possible exception of uh, van der Beek. Will it be a while before we see him again?
5: Yeah maybe. I mean he, he has struggled for for league minutes obviously and and that's nothing new you know Liverpool have had players like like Robertson and Fabinho himself who took a long time to get into the team and were then able to hit the ground at sprinting speed. Van der to me strikes me as a player who who wants to play who, who will be better from having time on the pitch. And, and if it is a case of him or Bruno Fernandes, then then really there's no decision to make at the moment. Fernandes, I think, did look a bit tired, although Solskjaer refuted that idea. Um, but it's, it's, it's night and day between them at the moment because Fernandes dictates the entire tempo of United's game high at the pitch. And Van der Beek kind of did the opposite against Liverpool. He was pretty anonymous.
6: It feels like one of those signings um, where, it, you know, it was made because they could do it rather than because they needed to do it. It's probably the area of the pitch where they're most well-stocked. So it makes you wonder why they felt that they needed him to.
2: Was Bruno coming on as, as it so often is the, the turning point? Is that, was that the reason, I guess, the fact that he scored the game-winning goal would, would point to it being the reason that Man United won?
5: Yeah, he, he he he's weird, in that he's he's kind of like Mohamed Salah at times, in that he does three things, and you kind of wonder what the fuss is all about. But the fourth thing he does is stupendous, and that's why there is a fuss. I think more than, probably more than his, his impact on the game, free kick aside, it's it's more the lift he gives the players around him when he comes on, because they see him as a as a genuine. You know, a literal game changer and a game changer in terms of the you know the the psychology of the squad. And I think the same is true of Cavani as well. Like the example by all accounts that he's setting in training is is something for players like Mason Greenwood to follow.
3: I think the best thing for United and Fernandez is that he gives the link between those front three players that you know the likes of Greenwood, Martial, Rashford, the players who can exploit space who are great in the counter attack. He's the link between those as well. And it's not just the case of, you know, we're probably going to talk about uh, Thiago, you know, where he's doing the playmaking from a lot deeper. Fernandes is in a position where he can really hurt teams and they've got the players in front of him to really hurt uh, opposition. So it's it's probably in that respect, that's what he gives them. And that's what makes the difference between other players.
2: There is a a view now on Thiago Alcantara uh, forming, which involves the stat that he's had five starts and Liverpool have won none of those games. But it, it's a it's a pretty unfair set of results with which to judge him by.
5: Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I I, th- I think that it's a worry in the short term, but it will be better moving forward. Is is I think that well, two things. Firstly, he is so orchestral in how a team plays that you can't just slot him in, and he kind of gets a run in the team like you might with a you know a wide forward or maybe even a fullback. Um, or a Fabinho at centre-back. When he is in the team, he will dominate possession. So everyone needs to be completely cleared up with how he's playing. And I, I do also think that with him and Van Wijnaldum, I think when it comes to it, and Wijnaldum's obviously potentially leaving, um, I, I think it, it would work best with one or the other. I think they both like to take a couple of touches before playing the pass and you you kind of miss that one-touch passer or that driving passer which maybe Henderson provides so I think the two of them there can sometimes make Liverpool look a bit slower to get the ball from back to front
3: I think the biggest reason why uh, Liverpool are having problems against opposition is because they're just being denied space if you give them space in behind if you try and press them high or hold just the even normal line they're going to kill you in the, in, uh, in the space so that's all they're doing—just restricting the space and making them put balls in from wide. And we've seen, you know, United did it last year uh, when uh, Solskjaer went to three at the back and just basically defended the width of the posts. Uh, West Brom did it as well. They know that if they can just get bodies in the middle of the box and just make them play the balls in from wide, then they haven't really got the players in there who are going to punish you. You know, regardless of the volume of of crosses that come in there.
2: And Burnley, of course, uh, did this spectacularly on, on Thursday evening, beating uh, Liverpool 1-0 at Anfield. One of the real shocks, I mean, their recent slump not notwithstanding. It is just one win in seven in all competitions for Liverpool now, which came against Aston Villa's youth team. Uh, next up, they've got Spurs on Thursday. Matt, did you see enough green shoots of recovery to feel optimistic about this from Liverpool's point of view? You just can't underestimate the
6: the absence of the injured players, can you? Is the thing, it? and it seems to it seems to have really taken a toll on Jurgen Klopp that this season. So, I mean, a statement victory against Spurs would would that get them back up from running? Is it they've got an extra day's rest? Yeah, I, I think they 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 are well capable of going to to Tottenham and winning. Obviously, um and and you know the fact that we did see Salah looking something like his best um, is a big plus for them.
5: I think what what David says is absolutely spot on as well. And, and Liverpool will have more space behind probably, maybe not against Tottenham, but certainly in, in their games coming up, there's an argument to say they're probably better against bigger teams um, because they are able to play like that. And, they, you know, in their next seven league games, I think they play five of the top seven or um, maybe next six league games, they play five of the top seven. So they may well get a chance to do that, which, yeah, I mean, Manny and Salah delight in that space in behind teams and they just they just didn't find it against Burnley.
3: And this thing about having to bring a settled defender in, of course, needs must, but they're so canny in the transfer market. You're right thinking that they they won't get the right the person unless it's the right person, it's the right deal, it's the right fit. They're not a team now who splurges just for the, the sake of it. I know, like I said, needs must. But if the right person out isn't out there, you feel that club won't bring him in just because, just to make up the numbers.
2: Mm. Or their committee with the laptops won't. Yes. Uh, so a tough run of games coming up for Liverpool, but one that perhaps will offer them the opportunity to bounce back. Man United, meanwhile, through to the fifth round, where in just over a fortnight, they will be facing West Ham in a fixture sorely lacking in backstory or easy narratives about David Moyes and Old Trafford. Uh, anyway, next up, let's check out what the Hammers did and the rest of the FA Cup fourth round news.
0: Uh, doctor, he's waking up. Oh, what, what's going on? Uh, where am I? You've been asleep for the last year and the world has changed. I've prepared a file here on everything that's happened, but uh, brace yourself. Oh. Well, how bad could it be? Uh, 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 oh my God. Yes, hard to comprehend, isn't it? Yeah, Lemard spent how much? 250 million are nothing but donkeys. Oh, put me back, under, underdog. Paddy Power. 18plusbgambleaware.org
1: This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh Football Club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Patch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around.
2: FA up fourth round. Two games still to go. So far, no big shocks whatsoever. Brentford and Cheltenham threatened an upset. Brentford taking the lead at home to Leicester before losing 3-1. Cheltenham more dramatically, 1-0 up against Man City with 10 minutes to go before also losing 3-1. City now have a fifth round clash against Swansea, whose result this week escapes me momentarily. Matt. Uh,
6: yeah, yeah, the... Um I mean, what do you say? You know, I'm sure you've seen the clips of Carl Jenkinson and Guyton Bong. I think
2: that that says more than than me and Daniel ever could. 5-1 win for Swansea City against Nottingham Forest. Elsewhere in the FA Cup fourth round, holders Arsenal went out at the hands of Saints, who they'll face again on Tuesday in the league. Saints' next opponent in the Cup, meanwhile, are Wolves, who up against sixth-tier Chorley on Friday night, managed one exciting shot on target in a 1-0 victory. Elsewhere, a blast from Basuma, helped Brighton pass Blackpool and into the fifth round where they'll take on Leicester. Sheffield United socked it to Plymouth Argyle 2-1. That's their third win now in four, the Blades. And they'll get Bristol City next to beat Millwall. Chelsea played all the hits against Luton. Werner missing a penalty. Kepper gifting a goal, uh, but they still got a win and a fifth round clash with Barnsley. And also through Everton, who looked very stylish again, back to their silky early season form. And they'll be up against the winner of Monday night's clash wickham against tottenham tuesday it's bournemouth against crawley the winners of which will take on burnley Uh, i hope you're keeping up with all this Uh, who beat fulham 3-0 mark davidson says i know it's last week but can you give a mention for burnley's win at anfield because today's game showed shutting out liverpool ain't easy go on then 1-0 for burnley thursday night at anfield david
3: I think that uh, that Burnley win was, you know, like we mentioned before, the West Brom and Manchester United last year. It's about defending the box, make sure that put balls in wide. And it was all about Nick Pope, really. He's been so uh, solid this season, especially when we talk about dealing with crosses. You know, Liverpool didn't have the players in there to be able to tap the ball and anything that was above head height, he was coming claiming. And um, like I said, he's just really solid and there was no way past him. And I think more than anything, uh, it was about him. Uh, the reason why they got that win.
2: Brilliant. Is Nick Pope the most important goalkeeper in the Premier League in terms of his impact for his team?
3: Yeah, but also the the fact that he he really suits them, even more so than Tom Heaton before him. I think that um, because the way that they defend, especially against the bigger sides, they they need somebody who can come in the claim crosses. if they're going to make sure that they funnel their attacks out wide and to force them to play balls into the box. And again, when balls are coming through from uh, from distance, you've got to make sure that somebody's really solid and that he's uh, that he's handling's really good and he's not given going to give away any second chances from that's going to come off him, because it, that that can be a real factor when the balls you know you're playing uh, you're defending really deep in your box, balls are coming through bodies and you've got to make sure that you you know if you're parrying balls, you've got to make sure they get away from danger or, or, or the stick. So I think it's a, yeah, it, it's it's a real good marriage.
2: Now let's talk about uh, another team with a very important keeper Chelsea. Chelsea and their clash with Luton on Sunday, well Sunday lunchtime this was, wasn't it? Matt you were you were in the environs of this game. Mm. Not close enough to go and get Luton out of the dressing room on time, but close enough to see what was happening out on the field. A good afternoon's work for a team in crisis this.
6: Yeah, I mean, I, I saw this as a potential banana skin, I've got to be honest, even though Luton haven't been pulling up trees in terms of their away form in the Championship, but um, it certainly looked a trickier game than it turned out to be, and I think Nathan James will have regrets about the way that he set his team up, to be honest, because they let Chelsea have far too much of the ball in the first half, and and Chelsea actually played quite well during that period, but then, of course, they let a goal in, as they are want to do, uh, and, and the confidence just completely drains out of them, uh, it seems, but they kind of huffed and puffed their way through it and then scored a brilliant third goal. And, and obviously we're going to talk about Kepper and Timo Werner, but I think it would be remiss not to point out that that third goal was a made-in Chelsea goal. You know, Mason Mount, captain for the day, been at the club since he was six, Uh, Billy Gilmore, Callum Hudson-Odoi involved in the goal and then Abraham finishes it. And, and, you know, Frank Lampard might not be Chelsea manager for for much longer and he's come in for a lot of criticism, particularly on this podcast, and and a lot of it is justified. But his legacy is going to be those players that he leaves for the next manager, I
2: would suggest. You say on this podcast, Matt, but we're not the ones being called out in Chelsea press (laughs) (laughs) conference, unlike you and your straight-out-of-Cobham colleagues.
6: Yeah, a rather invidious position for me to be in as a, a contractor of both the Athletic and Chelsea Football Club. But but there we go. It's nice to know that, that Frank's a subscriber. I'm, I'm not sure if he um, went to theathletic.com slash Pod to sign up for just 3 99 a month for the first six months or what. But um, it was a weird criticism that he that he put at Liam, I thought. It was um, nothing to do with the question that, that Liam asked him, which was something about Petr Cech. But I think it was probably a response to the fact that the Athletic published a story after Chelsea were beaten by Manchester City, saying that Chelsea were looking at alternative options. Uh, and it came pretty much on on the final whistle. And I know the club weren't particularly impressed by that. But If you've read any of Liam's writing, which I have, you'll know that it is balanced and fair and very well researched. So it felt like a, a bit of an unnecessary dig. But I will ask Liam about that when we record straight out of Cobham tomorrow and you can hear it straight from the horse's mouth.
3: What, what do you think about that, Matt? Because I, I always think that if uh, you know when a, a manager makes a direct sort of quote from a piece that he's he's read, and it's obviously something that's, that he wanted to get out there, you know, it wasn't something that was off the cuff because something that that he'd mentioned in that uh, in the press conference. It it, it worries me. That he's thinking about that rather than other things. Chelsea fans were saying on, on Twitter that, oh, you know, people like Sir Alex Ferguson always did that in press conference to sort of to to uh, to make a point, but he was coming from a position of power.
6: Yeah, it just felt unnecessary. I mean, it, also because he, in his previous answer, he kind of said, "Well, I don't really scroll social media and I don't read stories," and and then he was kind of quoting from stories that he's read. Um, yeah, it. it It's never a good look, I think, for a manager. Um, I'm not saying he's not right to feel that he's got a legitimate grievance at the way that that story was published a few weeks back. But at the same time, you kind of have to rise above that,
2: I think. And this was an excellent performance from Chelsea, no doubt with uh, Liam Twombly's words pinned to the dressing room wall, uh, the, the one kind of fly in the ointment perhaps being the performance, the, the miss penalty from Timo Werner and the goal which Kepper conceded by helpfully moving his knee out of the way of the uh, Luton shot. Tom Williams tweeting, how can Timo Werner be so short of confidence in front of goal when he spends the week taking shots at Kepper? What did you make of <laughs> Kepa's performance there, uh, uh, David? Is there a, a salvageable player in there?
3: I'm not so sure now I mean I get accused of being sort of very lenient on goalkeepers and, and making excuses for them but sometimes you know it's there for everyone to see and I think at most it was a troublesome shot that maybe you know that he was never going to catch but it, it's certainly one that he should be blocking and getting something behind and a lot a lots been talked about his technique uh, mostly by myself. You know, he has this big sort of arm swing technique and sometimes when shots come at you so fast as they ordinarily do in the, in the Premier League when they hit so cleanly, you just don't have time to, to have any sort of um, unnecessary movements. And so, so by the time he swings his arms back and then he's trying to get down to the, uh, to the floor with it, he just made a, a complete hash of it when just sticking out a leg. I mean, sometimes it is just as easy as that. Just to block the shot, and I think that mm. now it's it, Matt was saying that the, you know that you see some confidence drain from from the players where, after that goal went in, and it's it's difficult uh, for players not to take notice of that and not to feel sort of um, feel extra pressure that the the goalkeeper isn't solid behind them. You know, the uncertainty spreads throughout the team and uh, and becomes a cancer in, in, in performance wise
5: it's so hard on goalkeepers though because i mean Timo oven missed that penalty but if he'd have scored that penalty the the kind of the commentators would've said you know he needed that he can get going again now goalkeepers just just don't get that luxury you know kepper made a, a fantastic save with his left arm in the second half but one doesn't cancel out the other with goalkeepers whereas with strikers it's almost the other way around you know you, you can miss two good chances and if you score the third and it wins you the game, then you are hailed as the match winner. So it's it's so hard for for goalkeepers. I mean, it, let's you know he hasn't been a successful purchase. It's been a, a fairly unmitigated disaster. But um, it's it's so hard for him to claw that back now. You know he would have to play for ten games and probably keep eight clean sheets and play really well. And you know he's not going to play ten games for Chelsea between now and the end of next season probably. So it's so hard.
6: I think that there's a a strong chance that that will be his last ever game for Chelsea, to be honest, because the FA Cup is now Chelsea's most... Uh, likely route to, to silverware obviously they've got championship opposition again in the next round um, but it's away at Barnsley, I don't see why Frank Lampard wouldn't use Edouard Mendy for that and I think it will be absolutely for the best not only for Chelsea but for Kepper himself because it's got to be such a miserable experience for him at the moment and I genuinely feel really bad for him and I hope that he can go on and, and resurrect his career because it sort of looks in tatters at the moment and that's, that's no good for, to think of for anybody in their early 20s
3: just going back to what Dan was saying before about, you know, that he made a fantastic save after that. It, it's it's irrelevant, really. The, the foundations of goalkeeping is about doing the basics and doing them well. And then on top of that, it's about, um, you know, it's not that anything else is a bonus, but that should be the foundation and his basics have been left wanting time and time again, whether it's decision-making, handling or diving technique and um it looks like it's, you know, the only uh, the only possible solution is a move away and sort of to rebuild himself again.
2: It was a fine win in the end for, for Chelsea. So let's finish off on a positive. Andrew Lang uh, wanting to talk about Billy Gilmore a year after his explosive debut. Uh, says Andrew, Billy Gilmore was class and second only to Abraham for man of the match. He just never panics, always makes time, almost always passes progressively or switches play. Surely he can't go on loan, Matt Davies Adams. Can he? Question mark. Well, Frank Lampard was asked about this in his his post-match
6: press conference and I thought it would be a certain no. It was more of a probably not, but we'll see, which I found strange. But, you know, he's coming off a serious injury, Gilmore. You know, he had a a very bad knee injury at the end of last season. So there might be a school of thought that it would be better for him to play 15 to 20 games for one team than 5 to 10 for Chelsea. But at the moment, I would absolutely have him above Mateo Kovacic and Jorginho as options in the Chelsea midfield without willing to put too much pressure on him. But pressure just seems to roll off his shoulders. He's so calm when he's got the ball, it's ridiculous. And he's not, he he doesn't pass it square unless there's absolutely nothing else on, which is something that Jorginho does, which obviously holds up Chelsea's play. Uh, He's quicker than Jorginho and Kovacic as well. He's, I think he's an exceptional player and I think he could feature very heavily for the rest of the season.
5: A quick word for Tammy Abraham too, because... Um, the focus is is sort of understandably been on Havertz and Werner, kind of struggling to to bed in. But um, he's got seventeen goals and assists this season, Abraham. Which, if if Werner had had matched that as the new signing, everyone would be hailing him as a you know as one of the summer signings and the kind of key to Chelsea's rebuild. So the fact that Abraham's managed to do that with not always being first choice and that pressure he must feel to score every week to stay in the team is. No mean feat for a, a fairly young lad who only really started in the Chelsea team last season. Um, he must still have an outside shot of a Euros place. I mean, I know it's a very difficult position to get into, but it's a phenomenal record.
2: Who knows, by 2023, when they're actually played, he, he might really be in, <laughs> in, uh, in an unassailable an, an, an position for that. Uh, elsewhere in our postbag, Joe Breton says, did everyone enjoy the long throw renaissance in this round of the FA Cup? Uh, so there was Bentoza. For swashbuckling Cheltenham against Man City, were there others, or was that one enough on its own to constitute a re- renaissance?
5: There's, so, I think, it's Sorensen, the Brentford uh, centre back, who takes long throws and scored from a corner. Uh, yeah, he 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 really roared a lapse into the box.
6: I really enjoyed uh, Guardiola trying to mark Toza after, after they scored the goal, just kind of standing in his way uh, like a sort of errant ball boy being sent out by Jose Mourinho to, to cause some havoc. Um, but yeah, Tozer deserves some some love from the pod For I mean, that goal line clearance was absolutely sensational. Yeah. The headed one in the first half. And he, he was probably the performer of the weekend, I thought, in in terms of an individual. Um, and somebody who almost left the game a couple of years ago, who was, was down and out at, at Newport, sort of cast aside by the manager. Um, had big problems with, with anxiety, thought that it would be best for him to leave football entirely, um, had some counselling on the advice of his wife, got a move to, to Cheltenham and, and hasn't looked back since he's their captain and, and yeah, put in an exceptional
3: performance in that game. I'm a massive fan of long throws, massive fan, especially against footballing sides who just don't like it. It's almost like, I mean, you, you see that with, uh, with Pep yesterday, it's almost like they feel it's unfair that you shouldn't be able to do it, you know, and it's only because it makes them uncomfortable.
2: As a keeper, how do you feel? If you're facing them, how, how, how much of a, a worry is that? To be fair, you very rarely um,
3: have somebody who throws it that far in the, into the box where you're involved. Sometimes it's because of all those bodies there, you're better off just leaving them to to deal with it and trust your defenders. At Malmo over here, we've got Jonas Knudsen, who's at Hipswich, a Danish uh, guy, and he can throw it to the other side of the box. He can go throw it to the far post if he wants to, and it, and he can throw it flat, and it, it so, becomes so difficult to deal with. Especially when, you know, teams like that, when they, they spend a lot of time on uh, different movements and uh, and coming up with different variations every week. So it's difficult to go on against. And it's always something that, yeah, last 10 minutes of the game and you need something. It's always something you can fall back on. It's always a plan B. Uh,
2: Liverpool, with their throw-in coaching, are we a bit disappointed that they haven't come up with anything special in this regard?
3: Well, not really, because I think there's probably a, a misconception that it's about, you know, being, it is about being clever, but that it's all about being having a long throw or uh, doing something uh, really inventive in the final third, when most of the time uh, what Thomas works on, it's about small movements to keep possession, because especially when the opposition have got a throw in, it's actually a very good uh, chance, uh, a very good opportunity for you to win the ball back. Because it's in such a small space, most most of the time, the average player can't throw that that far. Really, of course, he adds a few yards to 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 throws by some of the techniques that he uses. But ordinarily, like we do here, we always use it as a, it's a it's a big trigger to go and win the ball back rather than anything else. So when when you have the ball, it's about trying to keep possession and open, opening space up and and having uh and having movement so you retain possession of the ball
2: what it provided the assist for cheltenham here they didn't get the result in the end uh, although they were 1-0 up with i think about 9 minutes left of the of the 90 man city then sort of switched on and scored three goals in quick succession but a uh, fantastic performance from cheltenham in the closest thing we had to a cup upset so far
6: and now they get to face harry Kules oldham on tuesday so the um, the glamour continues
3: i just want to comment on uh, you know what pep was saying beforehand about we're all cheltenham you know we've all come mm, from cheltenham we're all we've from all cheltenham come from yeah. that. Yeah, we have all we've all come from Cheltenham, and we've all come from that level. We played at that level. That's very true, but you can't tell me that any of those players were looking forward to going to Cheltenham Town, or all all of those players would have been dreading going there. And the fact that the pitch was actually quite it was quite a good surface was probably a, a bit of a relief to them. But none of them want to go there. You know, as a, as a player going to a, a low level side like that, you, you know, you can't win you know and it's 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 not an inspiring place to you don't think oh this is where i used to play as a kid and this is how i grew up and i want it's great to be back here no it's not it's terrible
2: what about the liberty where they'll be going next round to take on swansea city free scoring well, we'll swansea see. city mm, free scoring swansea city <laughs> 5-1 winners over nottingham forest uh yes this weekend a quick word on that
5: Rubbish. Uh, just one, yeah, one word, or uh, <laughs> yeah, not good at the moment. I will pr- prefer to praise Swansea because they are doing fantastic things in the championship. It, it it always felt like this championship season more than any other that those coming down from the Premier League because of the shortened transfer window and that sort of thing probably had a a decent advantage. And they already have a, a pretty good advantage with parachute payments, et cetera, and, and gem- they, they, they kept their players more than they generally do. Um, but Swansea are, are threatening to kind of gate crash that party, and they're doing it under a under a manager who's taken a slightly different route and with a squad that you know. You look at the names of, of Watford and, and Bournemouth and Norwich, and then you look at Swansea's squad, and they're punching so far above their weight. It's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic job he's done.
3: Hey Dan, Fuad Bashiru's back now. For Forest, exhaust the sons. Yes, so I was talking about going out on loan, um, but
5: we didn't have many fit midfielders. There's also talk that we we will sign. We've already signed Kravinovic from from uh, on loan, and we'll probably sign at least one more midfielder. And because this is Forest, we'll probably sign another five after that. But. Um, yeah, he's been injured, which is a bit of a shame. He, when he signed, he felt like one of those players who we just wouldn't see play many games, which has happened with far too many Forest signings over the last few years. But yeah, good luck to him. We Obviously, we got him from Malmo, um, but I didn't realise he was at Ostersund's as well.
3: Yeah, that's where he started. He, he actually, I think he started, uh, osterson has got him from Grennett Morton.
5: Yeah, he was at Grennett Morton. Yeah, it's an, an odd career path.
6: But that's a, that's a key difference between Forrest and Swansea. Forest signed 14 players in the summer, total scattergun approach. Swansea hired a manager with an excellent coaching record He's also got unbelievable contacts in terms of getting loan players from Premier League clubs because of his time as the... England under-17 manager and you know led them to the World Cup with the likes of Mark Gerhie in that team who is now part of his Swansea side and Conor Gallagher who was last year Premier League managers know that their players will be well looked after at Swansea and and will play in a certain way and that is a massive, massive plus for a championship side if you can really tap into that low market it's a, it's a big advantage if you don't have the money of a team who's just been relegated
2: David was uh, questioning the uh, trepidation that Man City's players may have felt ahead of uh, that game at Cheltenham. I wonder about Wolves away at Chorley on Friday. Uh, certainly didn't light any fires out on the pitch. A one shot on target.
5: Yeah, I, I was actually really surprised when I read that because it, it it felt as as they should have done. It felt like they they had Chorley at kind of arm's length, having scored um, a brilliant goal from Vitinha. um th- There wasn't really any huge swell of of Chorley pressure but then they're in the National League North and um, I mean that—that that is you know this is a cup run that doesn't just you know it doesn't just provide memories for this season and sadly without fans but basically guarantees their future because they've played very very little football um, or may well play very little football for the rest of this season um, if though if their leagues are suspended and this keeps them afloat for two three years Um so you know all power to them they've got a little bit fortunate with you know, with drawing Derby and Derby having to play the youth team. But you've earned that luck when you're a, a plucky side like them in the, in the FA Cup.
6: Yeah, on Wolves, I, I thought the, the goal or the reaction to it, at least, kind of summed up the general malaise around them at the moment. Vitinha, first goal in senior football, absolute butte, and he looked like he couldn't have been less impressed. And it wasn't like he was mobbed by his teammates. And, you know, normally Nuno's up and down, berating his players, getting in the fourth officials ear, cajoling his team. And, and he looks so passive at the moment. And the whole the whole setup at Wolves just feels a bit flat and a bit, uh, it's not quite as good as last season, is it? It's really, really odd how it just seems to have dipped like that.
5: The arrival of William Jose might well help that. He's not a a carbon copy of Raul Jimenez, but he's more of that role than Fabio Silva looks at the moment. And the poor lad looks like a stiff Chorley breeze would have blown him over on Friday night. He's so slight Um, and there are obviously reasons for signing him and they didn't think he would have to start pretty much every game because of of Jimenez's injury. But yes, um, that may well help to lift the mood. But I agree with Matt.
2: it was, it was a it was a game that very quickly passed you by. Uh, Wolves, in the next round, will be taking on Saints, who beat uh, Arsenal 1-0 in the first of a two-game series against the Gunners. Bristol Saint asked, why didn't Arteta put out a stronger side against Saints, given that winning the FA Cup last season was probably the one thing that kept him in favour? And a lot of people pointing out that continuing in the competition offered a route into Europe this season that, the, the the Gunners may well be needing come the end of this campaign. What did you make of of Arsenal and of Saints' performance against uh, against them ahead of Tuesday's clash?
6: Just to answer the the Arsenal point, I think probably it just comes down to priorities, doesn't it? They need to move up the league table, and the Europa League's of greater significance to them than the FA Cup. So you can sort of understand it from from that point of view.
2: I think. Do you want to have a go at William again, Daniel, or have you had too many by now? <laughs>
6: Uh, no,
5: it, it's it's yeah, it's a it's a, a shambol. It was always seemed a shambolic transfer, and so it appears. One thing we can say about Arsenal is it looks like they will very shortly, if not by the time people listen to this, have signed um, Martin Urdegaard on on loan, which would be a, a just to give a kind of freshness that is a, sort of the antidote for, of of poor William at the moment, and to the same extent really, Nicola Pepe, who hasn't fired. So he, yeah, that is a real boon for Arsenal. I think it sounds like Arteta was crucial in that by kind of calling Udard and speaking to him and convincing him of the deal, and that's a really good sign. I think it's that's the type of footballer they should build around, not the, you know, not the 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 Willian types.
2: And Matty Ryan arriving as well, David.
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's a real smart move. It's a good move for him because although he's not going to play many games, he will uh, uh, he wasn't getting in the squad of Brighton for one reason or you other. Know, there's obviously more to more to it than meets the eye than than just a loss of form to be totally out of the squad. But also, it was it desperately needed to strengthen the uh, the goalkeeping department in Arsenal. So I think it's a really smart move for them uh, to make sure that they're they're covered. But just going back to to the game the other day uh, yesterday with uh, with Southampton, uh it was a little bit like old Arsenal the way the goal came about. You know when they were they were pressed by Southampton, which they were all game. They they coughed up the ball. And then while this is going on, you've got uh, Victor, uh, Hector Bellerin and uh, Elneny, was it, who were both like arguing over losing possession as they're coming into the box, as the ball's going wide. They're still arguing instead of uh, picking up. Uh, Arsenal have plenty of bodies in that central area to be able to cover that uh, that cross. And of, of course, it's it's took a deflection, this so one goal by Gabriel, but it just seemed to sum Arsenal up. You know, uh, I thought they'd moved away from that, the sort of the disorganisation. But it just looked so sort of amateurish.
2: Well, they go again on Tuesday in the Premier League this time. In terms of other fourth round results, Leicester beating Brentford 3-1 after the Bees had, had taken the lead in that game. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later on when we look at Leicester's midweek clash with Everton, who were also uh, big winners this weekend. Anything else you guys wanted to pick out?
5: One thing I was going to say, it's, it's back to the, the Manchester United game, but a word for Luke Shaw, who looks um, look, was sensational again. Um, he's not a perfect defender, um, but he has added this attacking verve to his game that we just hadn't really seen before. And I think it just goes to show that when clubs sign players, as Manchester United did with Alex Tellez, it isn't just a, a player to bring into the team and to replace you. It also can give you a kick up the, the backside, which... You know, Shaw might not have needed that, but certainly felt like he needed that kind of carrot to to pursue. And he's probably England's first choice left back again now, having kind of been out in the cold for a while. Ben Chilwell may have things to say about that, but yeah, I think he he's probably been Manchester United's second best player after Bruno over the last few months. And credit to him for that.
2: Mm. Well, we had a somebody writing in uh, in Thursday's show actually making the point that the way that he's returned to form and, and Pogba as well, one or two others, is uh, the players essentially called out by Jose Mourinho during his reign. There is is something of a testament to uh, Olegan Socio's ability to put an arm around the shoulder of uh, of these footballers. Anyway, uh, that's enough of the fourth round for now. One or two games to come. We'll see if Wickham can come up with uh, the first upset of the round against Spurs on Monday or perhaps Crawley against Bournemouth on the Tuesday. But next up, let's move on to other things, including a very special on this day.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to com slash courtside to learn more.
2: You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. 25th of January, everybody. Why does that sound familiar? Well, because it's possibly one of the most pivotal dates in Premier League history. On this day, 26 years ago, in 1995, Crystal Palace fan Matthew Simmons uttered the immortal words, "Off, off, off! It's an early bath for you, Mr. Cantona." Eric Cantona could find no pithier response than to try and kick him in the head, kung fu style, and the rest is history.
3: For that sort of incident, I care not one jot about his supreme talent. He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of
4: an out giving him lip.
2: What about it, Daniel? The most pivotal moment in the history of the Premier League? Without that, the class of 92 are making tea and driving Ubers. In a way, in a way, you've
5: you've very much not taken the words out of my mouth and book there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think so uh, for many reasons, which I won't bore everyone with too much. But yes, as you mentioned, the class of '92. I think the doing the the book I I wrote on that incident and the aftermath and the what happened next is it, it, I think that's slightly overlooked the role that Kant and I had in that class of '92. Basically. To cut a long story short, he was he was wanted to leave Manchester United. There was serious interest from Inter uh, and Ferguson persuaded him to stay by A, saying he would build a team around him and B, by saying, look, you, you haven't not got a job to do over the next few months. You can go and be a mentor to potentially the, the best crop of academy youngsters this club and potentially even this country's ever seen. And that's exactly what he did. And they all in their autobiographies kind of line up to say exactly
2: that. What was the biggest surprise about that story when you look back on it, when you researched it again, Daniel?
5: The thing I had no idea of um, was that Cantona was told to go on holiday by Manchester United very sensibly and was followed by an ITN reporter to some... I can't remember where the beach was, but some far-off, warm beach. And Cantona reacted so badly that he allegedly punched the reporter and... um, because the reporter was kind of trespassing on hotel property, was kind of persuaded to hand over the tape, and so Cantona kind of got away with it. But if that had come out, that might well have been the end, if there had been a kind of second repeat. Um, but it was also the other interesting thing is how much support Cantona got after the initial rush. I mean, if this had happened right. in the social media age, it would have been extraordinary. Um, but, you know, players like Jamie Redknapp, I think, and Andy Townsend came out and said, you know, we're sick of the abuse, fair play, which is quite a big like, thing nope. at the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Ian Wright, I think, was amongst that as well. David, you were playing for Sunderland, I think, at, at, at this point. No, what was what was the view among the kind of the, the, the players where you were?
3: Well, we had a I think it was a, we had a reserve team game against Coventry, I think it was that night, and then we sort of sort of filtered out to the pub as we usually did in those days in the heady <laughs> days of the nineties, and um, yeah, and we just couldn't believe it. it was on. I think it was on the uh, news at ten. And it, of course, it was shocking. But it was, it. I think most footballers would thought at one time or another that you've wanted to do that. And it is. It's. I don't think it's getting any better. To be honest with the the abuse that uh, the players get, you know, it's. If anything, you know, with the you know advent of social media, it, it could be more. It, it's not one to one, but it's more direct. You can get straight to your phone, and um, but it is. It's yeah. It's it's just something that you learn to grow thick thick skin about.
2: Goalkeepers, I mean, at the moment with stadiums being empty, this isn't a factor. I imagine that, generally speaking, uh, there's no one under more pressure from crowds than the goalkeepers. You're closer to them, and and plus you can't kind of try and style it out by pretending that you're busy for most of the game the way that the rest of the team can.
3: Yeah, it's it's true, and I mean, it, it doesn't even matter whether the, you know, even when you're playing stadiums of forty, fifty thousand people, you know, you can still hear the immediate people behind you, and and most of the time it is, it's just. Yeah. sometimes if it's just straight on abuse and it's just swearing then you, you know it, it's fine you know but there's plenty of stadiums where you know you, you go behind they take a ball for a goal kick and you're being, you're being spat on and which happened quite often uh, most of the time when I was playing at home but um <laughs> yeah it, it, is, it, 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 it is difficult sometimes to keep your, keep your emotions in check when something like this happens because you just think well most of the time, hundred percent of the time, actually, you know, these people wouldn't do anything. You know, walking down the street, or if they did, you know, <laughs> you would be able to do something about it. You know, mm.
2: what's the funniest thing anyone's ever said to you? I don't know if I've said this
3: before, but it was um, it was actually from about a seven year old kid, and it, and it involved no swearing at all. I think we were playing like a, a preseason game at Montrose or somewhere like that, and we drew four four, and they equalized in the last few minutes, and sort of like. In, as a close range finish and I've just turned round to get the ball at the back of the net and I just looked up and he just looked me straight in the eyes and went you're not very good are you <laughs> and it like it, 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 more than any of the sort of vitriol that's been spewed at me uh, before that was the most cutting it was the most cutting because it was honest I will go and get that kid one day
2: yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean alright well it's funny, but... let, yeah let's let's move on um <laughs> Crikey. Well, we've got a busy round of Premier League action coming up this midweek, starting Tuesday. Uh, exciting set of matches in places. Uh, on Tuesday, Newcastle got beaten 2-0 by Villa on Saturday in a, a Premier League match that was held over because of reasons. We'll be hosting Leeds United Palace host West Ham. Saints go again with the Gunners and West Brom take on Man City, who they took a point off at of the Etihad under Slaven Bilic and then promptly sacked him. On Wednesday, it's Chelsea Wolves. Burnley are up against Villa. There's a six-pointer at the bottom. There's Brighton host Fulham. League leaders, Man United, get a visit from Sheffield United and Everton face Leicester. Then on Thursday, Spurs against Liverpool. That Aston Villa-Newcastle game on Saturday. 2-0 win for Villa, which saw them move up to eighth place. They've still got two games in hand, continuing a nice run of form there, Dean Smith's side. Yeah, and kind of
6: put into... to stark contrast the difference between these two teams. So, you know, we often talk about Newcastle aren't very good, massively underfunded, etc. but these are two comparably sized clubs. I would suggest Aston Villa and Newcastle and Villa are 10 points better off than Newcastle. Having played two games fewer that, that, that tells you a lot. I think about, about recruitment, about managerial appointments, about, you know, a, approach from the club as a whole. It's, um, it's pretty stark.
2: Hmm. Newcastle fans braving freezing conditions to turn up at St. James's Park after the uh, final whistle 200 miles away, uh, with banners calling for Steve Bruce to go. Uh, pressure on the Newcastle manager increased with news that Rafa Benitez has left his position uh, as Dalian manager in China. He's not Dalian in, in China. If you, yeah. I,
5: I, th- I think that is a bit of a, a false flag. Um, Guillaume Balagay was taught. Talking- talking to the BBC and saying kind of how it ended at Newcastle um, cannot be overstated how kind of fractious that was Um, and it was very much a kind of you know this is your chance to keep me and if you don't want me then you know you make it perfectly clear and I'll leave and I'm sure he would go back there under a new ownership but I'm not sure he would go back under
2: Ashley. Okay Newcastle have scored just one goal in their last eight games in all competitions although The supporters outside St James' would have been heartened, no doubt, to see Alan Saint-Maximin returning from his COVID misery for the last 20 minutes of this game. Newcastle up against Leeds, anyway, midweek. Villa, meanwhile, are going to be at Burnley. Also, uh, in the Tuesday night set of fixtures, there's West Brom against Man City. Man City on that incredible 10-game winning run. But who were the last team to prevent City winning a match? West Brom back on the 15th of December at the Etihad, in Slavin Bilic's last game in charge. Cruel, cruel uh, fortune that awaited the Baggies' manager. Uh, This, of course, is Pep against the man that some felt should have become his defensive coach on the sidelines of the Etihad. Instead, they'll be going head-to-head. It's a fascinating clash. Of course, West Brom, it's not only the uh, draw they had away at the Etihad. They they also did that at Anfield, didn't they?
6: They did, yeah. I had a look at... um... Sam Allardyce. I nearly called him Big Sam. I'm really trying not to call him Big Sam all the time. Um, I wow. had a look at Sam Allardyce's managerial record against Pep Guardiola. i thinking there probably wouldn't be much history there, and there isn't. Uh, played three. Pep's won them all. So uh, same record that Sam Allardyce has got against Brian McDermott and Steve Koppel. Played three.
5: Lost Interesting.
2: Okay. Small Pep. No, let's call him Small Pep, I think, from <laughs> now on. <laughs> Uh, Kevin De Bruyne is going to be out for this game and plenty more to follow. Four to six weeks, they say, with a small hamstring tear sustained against Aston Villa. So uh, he won't be available for the game against Liverpool at Anfield in a fortnight's time, neither. Saints Mm. up against Arsenal. We talked about that one. Everton Leicester, though. Hey, were you able to enjoy Everton's uh, fine victory over Sheffield Wednesday on Sunday night shortly before we started recording this podcast?
6: Uh, I'm not sure "enjoys" the word that I used. It was it was fairly routine. Yeah, yeah. Um, not sure we could learn that, that much from it, to be honest. But this is a great, a great. This is kind of one of your your neutral games that 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 really sort of raises the interest, isn't it? I think Everton against Leicester. It'd be interesting to see if Everton are actually back and and you know are going to be a, a threat to the top four. I saw Leicester live. Uh, against Chelsea last week and I was so, so impressed by them, albeit um, Chelsea weren't very good. He really got an impression in the, in the empty stadium of the kind of level of organisation and, and tactical intelligence that, that Leicester are playing with at the minute. I think they're a really, really impressive team.
2: Mm. Doing fine without Jamie Vardy's goals and indeed without Jamie Vardy now because he's undergoing hernia surgery, expected to be out for a couple of weeks. Didn't seem to cause him any problems against Brentford where James Madison scored for the fourth game in a row Everton though six points behind Leicester but they have two games in hand this could be a very interesting game in terms of the two clubs ambitions no
5: yeah absolutely um and Leicester will miss Jeremy Vardy there's no doubt about that Kleti and Acha is is nowhere near that level as you say James Madison's come into form but Everton have got James Rodriguez back who looks Hammers looked up Brilliant. He was the best player against Sheffield Wednesday, albeit be a, a poor Championship side at the moment. But um, yeah, having that kind of smoothness that he provides is is huge. Um, because I think him again, him against Wilfred and Didi is uh, uh, will be an absolutely fascinating watch. Because I think they're probably two of the best players at doing exactly what they do in the Premier League.
2: That game coming up at quarter past eight on Wednesday night. It's a challenging time, slightly earlier. On Wednesday, there's another very intriguing-looking matchup From the other end of the table, Brighton up against Fulham. It's 17th against 18th. Currently, there are five points between them. Fulham just inside the bottom three, but the Cottagers have a game in hand. Brighton, of course, are the only team in England yet to win a home league match this season. Will that change this Wednesday?
3: Yeah, I I think that... um... Come the end of the season, I think this will be a massive result for both of them. You know, whoever wins this one gives them a huge chance of staying up. And I think, especially with, uh, with, with from Brighton's point of view, you know they, they've won a lot of plaudits early on in the season. They've outplayed the likes of Chelsea and Manchester United, and not got the results. It's it's been a case of them being able to control games, but just not having the firepower that the other two teams, uh, the other teams at the at the top end of the Premier League have, and that's what's that's what's missing.
6: I've got to say, I didn't think at the start of this season that I'd be more impressed with Scott Parker's managerial ability than I am with Graham Potter's, but I think that's definitely the case. I think Brighton gets such an easy ride for the fact that they play easy on the eye football when they are utterly toothless, and that's up to the manager to try and find a way around that. Albeit, they've got massive injury problems, Lallana, Lamptey, Jahan Bash, Connolly, Welbeck all out at the moment, but... um, David says it'd be a big result for whoever wins. I think it's going to be a draw this one. Fulham have won one of eight away from home in the Premier League this season.
3: Far from me to defend the next Ostersund manager, but it, it, the, the one reason why uh, why Brighton do struggle, especially for firepower, is when they've, uh, they're looking for players and they're, they're, they're targeting players. You know, They can come up against someone like West Ham in, in competition for the same player and, and West Ham can offer twice as much money you know, whether it's uh, Suchik, whether it's uh, Sebastian Haller, you know, they might be able to match the fees, but they can't match the the wages that they pay. And you know, when you look, you, you probably think that they can they can uh, they can afford to pay out fifty, sixty thousand pounds a week maximum. And West Ham can double that to anybody. You know, it, it's a tough market to be in, so it makes it a lot harder for them to recruit and uh, and get somebody who's going to make that difference further up the pitch.
6: Is that not why they got Dan Ashworth in though? To kind of help with this kind of thing. And could you know? I know, I know that obviously if somebody's offering you twice the money, you're going to take that. But if you say, well, you know, here's David Sullivan coming to Charmy to go and play your football at the London Stadium, or why don't you come to the seaside and play here?
5: I think, I think one of the things that Brighton have done maybe too much is that they they feel it feels like they've bought players for two years down the line. You know, players like. Tarek Lamptey, maybe, although he's been excellent, and Alexis McAllister, and they had Percy Tao, who had to go back, you know, had to go out on loan and then come in. It feels like the clever purchases they've made are two years down the line, which is is great, and I think it's the right thing to do, but it it, it does rather rely on the premise of you still being in the Premier League in two years' time.
2: Are you including Danny Welbeck and Adam Lallana in that category or not?
5: No, I'm not. Um, I'm massaging the figures to suit my argument, James.
2: (laughs) No, but uh, it's it's a fair point. An interesting perspective there. I must admit, any Premier League club pleading poverty, I find difficult from the point of view of the 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 vast chasm between them and the earnings in every other kind of European league. But it's it's a fair point you make. Anyway, uh, Matt, do you wish to? Have you got any kind of feeling in your bones? about who might be making the uh, the descent into the championship after your spectacular success. I know I always ask you, but, you know, just since we're talking about Brighton and Fulham, are, are uh, Fulham Brighton staying up? definitely.
6: I mean, I, I said last time I was on the pod, actually, it was when Fulham drew with Liverpool. And, and at that point, I said my big prediction was, I think Fulham are going to stay up. And actually, there's okay. not been much in the last couple of weeks to, to disavow me of that notion. So, yeah, Fulham to stay up, Brighton in trouble, but might just squeak it. Newcastle, we mentioned them. Last two games for them are Sheffield United and Fulham. So they want to be hoping that at least one of those teams are relegated by that point.
2: Ooh. Okay, then. Well, we've got some more to tell you about in today's Totally Football Show. Very shortly, we'll be talking about when goalkeepers score. First off, though, let's get some odds from Lee Price of Paddy Power.
4: Soon when? Only joking. God. I can't get away with that twice in one week. Some say I didn't get away with the first one, the big bores. But anyway, I've moved on to the next meme. So I'm sat here like Bernie Sanders, but that doesn't quite translate to audio form. Yep, like most of these segments. Now, I know lockdown is crazy, and it's hard at the best of times to know what day it is, to get dressed or spend time with your wife, but Southampton versus Arsenal is really tripping me out. We did this one, guys. They're determined to play again, it seems, and our traders make Arsenal the favourites again, because that went so well in the cup, didn't it? They're 5-4 to, to win, Saints are 2-1. Leeds are 9-10 to, to beat Newcastle, which is kind of like the rating Twitter gives their season. 9 out of 10, with the one thing that's missing, yep, results. Newcastle aren't going to win this game, so I refuse to give you odds for it. Instead, let's just take a moment to remember what a blessing Alan St Maxman is. God, I love that man. Uh, man City you will beat West Brom, but Palace vs West Ham is less easy to call. The Eagles are 21 to 10. The Hammers are 13 to 10. The emptiness I feel inside is 10 out of 10. All the best.
2: You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the paddypower Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Tuesday, listener, if you're hungry for something to stick in your ears, why not try the Totally Scottish Football Show from your friends at Totally or the Offside Rule WSL edition or... The Totally Football Show European edition, which is going to be a busy one this week. We've got loads to talk about. The Borussia Mönchengladbach-Borussia Dortmund game. The countdown to Milan-Inter in the Coppa Italia. And also the European view on this whole Super League business from uh, James and Alvaro and Julian and Raphael Honigstein. Before any of that, though, on Monday, the Totally Football League show will be discussing a broad range of topics, including Newport County goalkeeper Tom King Scoring what is now officially the longest goal in the history of competitive football. Yep, 96.01 metres from the Newport County goalkeeper Tom King, who shares, of course, a goalkeeping coach with Sasha Gurionov. What did you make of that, David?
3: Far from me to detract from Tom's feet, I I really do think that there should be some sort of uh, wind measurement in this. You know, the same you know same way that a uh, long jump is a wind assisted, and that's how you know records are taken away from people if it's if there's too much following wind. So
2: right, okay. Do you, do you have a favourite goal scored by a goalkeeper? Then
3: it has to be a Creme Pressman penalty for Sheffield Wednesday. He just puts it straight in the top corner, and if the net wasn't there, it'd have killed somebody behind the goal.
5: <laughs> it's still going <laughs> if the net's not there.
3: <laughs> um,
6: can I just ask, David? David, what's your what's your view on goalies scoring from goal kicks and then not celebrating it? I feel like that happens quite a lot, and and why would you not celebrate if you score? What's going to be the only goal of your career?
3: I'd be disappointed in anybody, especially anybody our I coached, if they didn't uh, if they didn't celebrate. It's a it's, it's a bit similar to this uh, muted celebration nonsense when you score against your old club. You see some keepers. I think it was Tim Howard. Was it Tim Howard that scored? And he didn't really uh, celebrate mm. because of, out of respect for the other goalkeeper,
2: David. In your goalkeeping coaching, are you now uh, doing set piece technique, free kicks, that kind of thing?
3: We have enough trouble saving them. Never mind taking them.
2: Right. What about coming up for a, a, a last-minute corner, or? Uh, you oh, know. I'm I'm all for that. I, I was
3: right. I, I was never really in favour of myself when uh, when I played, just because it's it's a long way back. If you don't, uh, if you don't get in a, get ahead, I do have an assist to my name. Actually, you got an assist. Yeah, when I was at Silver Bowl, we one nil down against uh, Viola, relegation battle. I'd give the uh, give a goal away against uh, in the first half. So last couple minutes went up there, won a header, knocked it down, so half half volleyed it in.
2: Was that one of the sweetest moments of your career?
3: Yeah, it is. But it's, talking about this is actually a bit of subject for me because we're playing for uh, Dunlop High Flex under-15s, uh, I took a goal kick out of my hands, launched it all the way down the pitch, one bounce over the goalkeeper, and then just as it got into six-yard box, it bounced across the line, and our striker, Stephen Halliday, ex-Motherwell in Hartlepool, just got a torn on the end of it and stole it off me. Oh, oh no. You'd not be surprised we don't speak these days. So. <laughs> still a, still not a surprised. Daniel
2: God. and Matt, do you have a do you have a favourite goal score by a keeper?
5: Uh, I mean, we're kind of obliged to say Jimmy Glass, I think. Yeah, um, that was going to be mine of,
6: too, I'm afraid.
5: In terms of football folklore, I mean, everyone will know about it. But, um, yeah, it has to be that because it was so kind of influential and I mean basically became part of people of my age's childhood for 20 years it became like a, a real kind of romantic memory of football of a football club that I'd never watched play before
2: so this was Carlisle against Plymouth Argar and this was what the last kick of the season to to stay up and not just to stay
5: up but to stay up in the football league and it relegated Scarborough the other the other kind of interesting thing about that is that Glass wasn't actually a, a Carlisle player who's on loan from Swindon Town um, so yeah I mean that that has to be that I mean they will still be doing do you remember wins on that in 40 years time
3: I suspect I think that's been notable mention from Mart Poom he's gone for Sunderland mm. against Derby. I don't know if anybody remembers it he just he actually times his run perfectly. He runs a full length of the pitch and just arrives as the ball's being, t- as the kick's being taken. And it's almost near post area. And he literally, hands down by him side as if he's being shot out of a cannon, flies through the air and just uh, uh, flicks it into the far corner.
2: Right. I mean, that's that's probably the most romantic type of goalkeeper uh, scoring where, where where they bundled up and they they somehow combined to, to get it in. It, it, My favourite example of that came only a couple of years ago when Benevento, do you remember when Benevento came up to Serie A and it was just a total farce, 14 games in, they had yet to record a single point. They were completely pointless after 14 games. They have Milan coming to town and it gets to... 92nd minute, and they're losing 2-1.
0: Parte Brignoli! Credo, credo, Brignoli
4: per il Non ci credo!
2: Alberto Brignoli, the, uh, the the goalkeeper, runs up and heads it in, and, and the and the crowd goes insane. But you, quite seriously, there are, and there's no reason there shouldn't be, but there are keepers who, you know, famously Schillaver. Or Rogério in Brazil, David, who were actually brilliant set-piece takers. Uh, Rogério actually was one of the was one of São Paulo's top scorers ever. He had 131 career goals, 62 of them were free kicks. Schillaver, meanwhile, once had a hat trick of penalties in a single game. Is that something that? Um, I mean, were you ever any good at set pieces, and if you were do you think there would have been a stigma about you approaching the ball you know would would your teammates have even let you close
3: Not really, but I, I think it's probably a case of the manager stepping in and stopping you doing it because it's it's like risk against reward it, it, you right. know if you hit the wall or or even when you put the ball in behind you know it, it's back in. I'll, I'll make myself sound old, but and my dear, when you just play, literally play with one ball, you know you could hit the ball over the ball and you'd have time to get back by the time the ball came back. When now you when you've got multi ball behind the ball uh, behind the goal, you know if you miss right. the target, you just put the ball down and set off an attack again. So it's that like said, it's risk reward, and yeah, for me it just becomes a, a bit of a gimmick, a bit of a novelty.
2: Right, very good point, David. Any other favourite goalkeepers scoring goal memories, Daniel?
5: Uh, I I had a hazy memory, which I concede I have had to Google to find out the exact details. But um, Oscarine Makaluke uh, was playing in the South African Premier League uh, and he scored an overhead kick from about 20 yards out as an equaliser. So he kind of goes up for the corner, corner comes into the box, he's headed clear and he kind of sprints away from goal and then does this kind of flying overhead kick, which is... Pretty special if you search the video. He was playing against Orlando Pirates in 2016, right. if you want to search it.
6: Not as glamorous a, a, a goal or, or a game, but but Barry Roach, 93rd minute equaliser for Morecambe in a 3-3 draw at, at Portsmouth uh, back in 2016. They only mention that because this is somebody who Daniel and I have seen concede a goal to a coffee cup, so it was nice to see him um, have a moment of success at the other end of the pitch.
2: Concede a goal to a coffee cup, Matt.
6: Yeah, he was playing for Forest at Derby. Somebody took a weak shot; it hit a coffee cup, plastic coffee cup, which was on the pitch, and bubbled over his foot and went in. There you go. But he did score a goal for Morecambe in the ninety-third minute. And he said, "I didn't have a clue how to celebrate. I thought about doing a Klinsman but the pitch was too dry."
5: The other one I've just remembered is Paul Smith scored for Forest against Leicester a few years ago in the Cup, which is interesting because the initial tie was abandoned after a Leicester City player collapsed, and Forest were. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Matt, but Forrest were 1-0 up at the time. And so as a kind of gesture of goodwill, Leicester allowed Forrest to run the ball in from kick-off. And because he was going to be allowed to do it unchallenged, Paul Smith put his hand up and said, well, I'll score a goal I've never scored before. So he kind of ran unopposed and tapped it in.
6: And one of the reasons that Paul Smith scored that goal was because they didn't want any impropriety in terms of people betting on the first goal scorer of the game. And so that's why he
2: did it. All right. Mm. Very nice. Very nice. Guys, that's extraordinary. And uh, it brings us to an end uh, of today's Totally Football show. David Brees, many thanks for joining us. Do you know, I never mentioned the fact that you're actually in Marbella at the moment.
3: I am, yeah. Not on holiday, though. No. Before the criticism comes in. No.
2: And in <laughs> full kit as well.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're out in the training camp with uh, with Oster Suns. We'll, we'll play, we've got a we've got a few games out here. It's nigh impossible to to get any games or to get any quality training. Not in Oster Suns, it's like fluctuates between minus fifteen and minus twenty in the minute over there. So it's we're playing um, three games: uh, Rostov, Lokomotiv Moscow, and Krasnodar.
2: All right, well, have a lovely time out there. We look forward to speaking to you again soon. Many thanks to Daniel and Matt as well for being with us and you, listener. We'll catch up with you soon on the Totally Football Show. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye.
1: You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at thetotallyshow on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power.
5: The Athletic.